0: thank you everybody for listening. We, the duck of Minerva podcast has been on a hiatus for some time. That's my fault traveling this summer and uh, two small kids. That's always my excuse for everything, but I'm really happy to be firing this podcast up again for this academic year. And we're starting with, I think a really great topic. So, um, before we get started, I want to introduce my two uh, co-conspirators for this podcast, Adam Lerner and Danielle Lai. Do you want to say a few words about yourselves?
1: Sure. I can I can go first. I'm Adam Lerner. I'm a senior lecturer at in International Relations at Royal Holloway University of London. Um and I work on a few different topics, but uh, most recently, I wrote a book about collective trauma in international relations. What I think qualifies as a big, big issue in international relations, a big question
2: hi everyone um so i'm daniela i'm a lecturer in international relations also at royal Holloway university of london um and my work focuses on questions of uh, justice and the meaning of justice after conflict and so my my book is about socioeconomic justice um i guess that also should count as a big question um thank you so much for having me on the podcast
0: and that those allusions to big questions are allusions to what we're going to be talking about today so uh, about a month or so ago, Barrett Braumuller posted on Twitter something about big questions and how we don't ask big questions in international relations anymore. And the co- the three of us kind of had this conversation. Is this the case? Do we not ask big questions anymore? Do we ask big questions anymore? And this is an opportune time to be thinking about this issue we have the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the possible use of nuclear weapons uh, on the battlefield, there or the, the worries about that. We have Xi Jinping elected to a third term, elected air quotes, to a third term is the leader of China and the increasingly worried messages coming out of Washington that the, the PRC may want to move up their timeline for forceful reunification of uh, Taiwan with the mainland. We have the U.S. midterms, which always prompt some, well, elections, American elections in general, because the United States, as we all know, is the only superpower in the world, prompts these questions about the role of the United States in the international system, the nature of the international order. Will the United States continue to bear the burden of that international order? Will it change? So this is a good time to talk about these big questions in an IR so without further ado from me let's let's crack open this thing um, and so maybe a good way to start is to think about this from a kind of pedagogical or um, teaching standpoint if we were to have a big questions seminar and we had you know notables from around the world in it what what would we, what would that look like? Would, would we have such a seminar or would it just evolve into a bunch of small questions or would there be something overarching we could talk about in a big question seminar?
1: Um, Maybe I can start this up first. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot. I think part of the issue with uh, the big questions question has to do with the sort of fracturing of our discipline, the way that we're siloed. So some of the time we ask what we think are big questions, but in ways that are not well suited to getting big, inclusive, interdisciplinary answers. So I was kind of wrestling with this question of how would you uh, orient a, a new seminar if you could really have the bend the ear of uh, people you think need a lesson in international relations, people who um, are important in the world. I think you know one of the things that I would do is is stop <laughs> teaching the paradigms. Um, in the way that we we do. It stop teaching this sort of siloed discipline where we have these sort of cohesive approaches that ask and answer their own questions in real time and start to break that down. But I was also thinking about what kind of topics would provide a good orientation, a good big question orientation. I was thinking, you know, if I could design a new graduate seminar right now um, for the. know for people who want to go out there and make a difference in the world of international politics i focus on global inequality that's i think the topic that i would uh pick um i don't think i'm yet prepared to teach this course i have to do some some work on it but i the motivation for it i think is that you know there isn't a vision of inequality across different paradigms and theoretical perspectives in ir you think about realism and the balance of power, balance and imbalances of power, Marxism and inequalities of class, post-colonialism looking at inequalities between the global North and the global South, or feminism looking at gender hierarchies. But this vision of inequality doesn't really get put into big question conversation. It doesn't get asked in a sort of holistic way because it's done within a single research tradition. So, I mean, partially I'm motivated because I am convinced that inequality is one of those great issues of our time, but also I think um, it provides that sort of focal point that can actually facilitate conversations between theoretical camps. Um, And I mean, if you look at, you know, some of the big issues of our day, I'm thinking right now about COP27 and the climate negotiations that are going on. Inequality is kind of behind a lot of these uh, disagreements. You think about... um, uh, domestically in places like the U.S. and U.K., we have massive income inequality. So it's so tough to convince a big swath of the population um, that might feel less left behind and uh, feel that their regions have been deindustrialized. It's tough to convince them to make sacrifices. But then internationally, there's these enormous structural inequalities, legacies of colonialism and uh, conflict that, uh, you know, create global haves and have-nots. And so we're having these international uh, negotiations where inequality is the backdrop, um, and yet we're trying to have a purely forward-looking arrangement with, uh, without uh, wealthy states being held accountable for their past emissions. So I would look at global inequality. I think that's a productive way to frame a big question debate. I'm interested to hear what you guys have to say.
2: Yeah, if I can come in now, um, so I, I totally agree with you, Adam, um, that a course like this should be more interdisciplinary than the usual way we teach about maybe big questions in IR, and that's a way, and a useful way to think about this is also to link the issue of inequality or inequalities in the plural to contemporary crisis. So you could look at economic crisis centered around economic inequalities, but also gender and racialized forms of inequalities and a planetary environmental crisis to do with climate collapse um, or also health crisis to do with COVID-19 or even to think about US politics at the moment, for example, access to abortion and abortion rights. Um, as well. and I think this approach would also help us deal with questions on topics such as violence or justice, or colonialism, imperialism, and their legacies uh, much better. And my view on this is that in all this, in a course like this, the great debates of IR would only come in when they are helping to illuminate these issues and not just be taught as the canon. So this would be an approach that allows also more space for, and it actually necessitates a more sustained engagement with things like feminist or queer theories or post-colonial theories and decolonial theory or ecology and post-structuralism from the start, rather than following the approach of teaching theory by theory and letting the theories ask and answer their own big questions. Um, and I think sometimes we get a little bit stuck into teaching about these topics in a certain way, because that is the system that has been in place for so long uh, of teaching, you know, a 10-week graduate seminar as a one theory per week. But if you only have 10, there are very important things that you will end up leaving out. And the best strategy that I've found so far of dealing with this issue is really to put different theoretical perspectives into conversation in each session. Um, If you're organizing the sessions as revolving around these important questions of crisis and and inequalities. Um, So if they don't, if students, uh, you know, the students we want to teach, who we want to make a difference in world politics, if they don't get the in-depth understanding of a specific theory in a specific week, you know that's that's fair enough. They could go on and specialize on that in some other course, but they need to have addressed these big questions or big problems um, in a way that is more uh, productive and through a more diverse set of theoretical perspectives first.
0: So I, I think I agree with what both of you are saying. I, I'm just, it sounds to me, Daniela, like the paradigms come in for you they just come in through a problem-oriented structure right is that is that fair
2: yeah i think there are you know interesting things that i are said to say in the past about world politics and i'm i'm not i'm not arguing that you know students shouldn't read uh, the walls i'm just arguing that they should read it in a specific context and in conversation with other theories that have said other things about wars that are not Said and over, and they are substantially overlooked in that kind of work.
0: Yeah. So you're bringing yeah. the the different theoretical paradigms or perspectives into dialogue centered around specific um, issues or problems like war, inequality, etc. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, the reason I'm asking because it sounds to me, Adam, like you you do you feel the same way? Do the paradigms come in through this problem, or do we just junk the paradigms altogether? What I'm wrestling with is yeah the origins. Of big questions, right. so you can sort of well, understand them. The paradigms, God, it's not really a good term, but we'll go. Yeah. we don't really have anything else um, that works. The paradigms set the you know set the stage for asking questions, and so if we uh, so are the paradigms themselves the seed beds of the big questions. And so do we have to keep them or can we get rid of them and focus on problems? Cause I kind of want to focus on problems, but yeah. we need some kind of theoretical frameworks to engage those problems. Right?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. I, I completely agree by the way, that paradigms is the absolute wrong word, at least from a philosophy of science perspective, but um, we're going with it. Paradigms. Uh, I really like Daniela's idea of focusing on crises because I think it provides an avenue for historicizing some of the paradigms because if you look at you know the major IR paradigms to a degree I mean to a significant degree they developed to in response to global crises global changes um I mean the you know classic example constructivism developed as an IR paradigm as an alternative in response to the end of the Cold War, right? This I think there's a, a historical narrative to tell there, the development of realism after World War II. But then, you know, if these are if these paradigms are responding to historical crises, then we can, you know, ask to what degree are they transportable to contemporary crises? And I think in that sense, they serve less as a sort of holistic framework and more as uh okay this this was a good way of thinking during this time period let's see how and to what degree we'll update it for our time period so we have a, a bit of a more flexible uh vision of the paradigms i think part of the problem is and this is, a lot has to do with what i view as the self-presentation of realism you know scholars like waltz and Mearsheimer uh portray their theories as this sort of parsimonious, mo- holistic model, you know, pitched at the, at the systemic level that, um, you know, has a sort of scientific quality that it's not meant to be adapted and bended and modified according to historical change. Um, and that might not be the best approach for a more, you know, uh, for a discipline that's more oriented towards contemporary problems and contemporary issues.
0: I guess I'm coming back to this question of the big questions and the origins of the big questions. So returning to bear's kind of statement or tweet, I don't remember exactly what the tweet was, but that we don't ask these big questions anymore. Um, it, I, I, am wrestling with wh- what are the, wh- what are the origins of the big questions? If the theoretical paradigms are the origins of the big questions and are simultaneously stultifying the big questions how do we get around this right so i i can see i mean I, I take both of your points that the sort of paradigm in you know graduate theory ir theory paradigm by paradigm is actually can actually be stultifying to the big questions because you're not actually you're playing in the same sandbox, right? So realism doesn't speak to environmental issues. And so when you're in your fear in the realism sandbox, climate change is just not a thing that you do anything about. And so climate change is clearly a big issue. And there are big questions to be asked about climate change. But if you're in the realism paradigm, you're not you're not engaging those. So that in that sense, the paradigm is stultifying in terms of big questions. And so having a crisis or a problem or an issue oriented pedagogical setup in our imaginary seminar opens up the box for big questions. But I still have this lingering suspicion that the paradigms themselves are are the seedbeds or the sources of these big question frameworks. And so I, I guess I'm, maybe there's no resolution to this. I'm I'm struggling with how would we teach this graduate seminar in such a way that opens up those questions, but recognizes the paradigms as playing that role if it does, and maybe it doesn't, maybe they don't do that.
2: So I'm sorry if I have to go there, but the key thing for me, or one of the key things is how do we define what's big? And I feel like a lot of people, when we talk about big questions, they hint at the fact that these questions are important. That's a general assumption, but that then what is important is harder to define. And sometimes in a lot of these discussions, what is implied by big question is that big equals macro, so that we are talking about something happening at the systems level, that it's about, you know, something at the system level of analysis. So, you know, a question of why wars happen, right, that kind of thing. Or that if we are talking about big question, we might be talking about a, a general statement. So a kind of question that leads us to the, a generalizable answer on a topic, um, and or that we are talking about a big question, as say historical IR might do, looking at big questions as historical processes of change, or that you have to look at in a longer kind of time frame and these things are all slightly different and they imply a different way of answering the questions as well and a different kind of IR scholarship Um, and ultimately I mean this has to do with a question of you know who is in a position to say this is a big question and what they mean by big and whether people around this person in the academic community of IR will accept that these are big questions. So I think right now, probably, I know this doesn't answer your question, Jared. Um, I'm sorry if it doesn't, but I think IR is, and it's a good thing, diverse enough that there can be different ideas about what big questions are that can coexist. And what that means for me is that you can address questions that are big according to certain standards without necessarily having to convince everyone around you that it's a big question. That's deeply that unsatisfying makes sense. That, an make, that makes sense
0: <laughs> that makes sense the you do open this this area this issue I mean we haven't defined what a big question is and I think this is uh this ties in with a long longish thread that Tom Nichols put up that uh, Peter on the duck has responded to with a with a post and Tom suggests that and we can. We can get into this uh, more later if we if we so choose. But he suggests that there's been this scientificization of IR, and this has led to a failure to be able to answer big-ish questions about Ukraine, I guess. Um, and so, I I think you're right, Daniela, that there is this there is an assumption that big questions are macro-level, systemic, or broad historical sweep questions that might address either macro level phenomena at the system or you know patterns of behavior by particular states over long periods of time and so this gets to this idea of generalizability that big questions speak to general are able to generalize about patterns of behavior at appropriate scope more or less right and that gets to this i think that has this. That exists in tension with this scientificization of IR. If we accept uh, Nichols Nichols's argument, which is, on the one hand, we seek generalizations. We want to be able to make broad statements about uh, human behavior in collectives. On the other hand, scientificization. If you pair it with a kind of neo positivist and neo positivist epistemology and quantitative methodology. Doesn't, Nichols makes the point that we just don't have the data at the international level to be able to do that. And so, if you want to bring all those three things together generalizability, neo positivist epistemology, and uh, m- quantitative methodology you can't ask big questions. You don't have the data, you don't have the capacity to do that in a really adequate way. So, you have to drill down to smaller questions where you can get access to that data. And so there I think there's a tension there.
1: I think I agree, but I I, I I have two two sort of general points and I think together they they speak to this. Uh, the first is this idea of formulating big questions as a discipline for the discipline without some sort of conversation with the world outside the discipline. And I think that you know, when we think of systemic IR or macro-level IR, the sorts of problems that um, Daniela was referring to, like what are the causes of war, these system-level problems, it becomes sort of easy to forget that uh, that you know le- these levels of analysis are a creation of contemporary IR, especially contemporary U.S. IR. Um, it was you know this is Waltz's idea to pitch these three levels of analysis and have a sort of implicit hierarchy between them, um, where systemic explanations are superior to those that look at uh, the domestic formulation of foreign policy. How many of you guys have ever talked to someone outside the field and they find this distinction between the system level and foreign policy analysis utterly bizarre? They they assume that because you work on IR, you know something about foreign policy. Um, So, I mean, to the degree that we're trying to formulate big questions without a dialogue with you know journalism the uh, activist communities um politically interested parties uh we're gonna end up digging these these giant uh conceptual rabbit's holes i don't know if that's a if I'm mixing metaphors there um digging these giant holes for ourselves that you know we've, we've created a big a big problem or a big question for ourselves like what are the causes of war across time and space when really the relevant policy question at least in our time period seems to be, you know, what's the cause of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and what should we do about it? That seems plenty big enough um, to most people. And pitching it at the level of what are the transhistorical causes of war seems, uh, you know, almost meaningless. Yeah. Um, and then, but another thing I would say is this this issue of the scientific, science, the scientification the scientific of IR, the, the move towards uh neopositivist epistemologies and quantitative methodologies i think you know it's not as though those are the only things that still exist in ir but i think that the the fracturing of the discipline has led to sort of a fracturing of what we consider big questions so in this this more quantitative ir community i think you know the definition of big question has really shifted to big data you know uh, big methods big data ambitious research projects and I mean, I certainly appreciate that sort of stuff. I I I think you know specifically of the work of people like Darren Osimoglu or Danny Roderick, um, who have you know done a lot of work and are both economists, but have have done a lot of work uh, that speaks to IR and political science. And they just mobilize these massive data sets. And I think that that's a real ambition. For that's what bigness looks like to um, a certain wing of the discipline, and that's great. Um, And then there's certainly the more traditional IR theory world that views bigness as grand theory. So system level, this is the the traditional IR paradigm debates, um, your waltz, your Mearsheimer, et cetera. These are the big questions of international order and the balance of power. Uh, And then finally, I think, you know, there is another wing of the discipline that views big questions as big ambitions. So whether this is a, a big normative agenda, or a critical agenda to reorient discipline or reorient debates in some direction. I mean, all of these are valid aims, I think, and can produce good IR research. But to the degree that we want to have big questions as a discipline to orient us as a scholarly community, the having uh, our, big, our vision of big question be so fractured between the people who use certain uh, epistemologies and methodologies, people who use other ones, it's it's sort of unproductive. Um it, it undermines the bigness of the question if it's if it's if we have this sort of fractured perspective on it.
2: I guess this is probably where I slightly disagree with Adam, uh, because I think that this a sort of fracturing ends up being inevitable if we are adhering to a completely different or divergent standards to answer questions that we ask. And that also means we ask different kinds of questions that in a tradition like the quantitative tradition that he, he was mentioning are mostly questions that are underpinned by a specific understanding of causality um and then the kind of explanations that you develop are also have to respond to that and as a result then the problem with asking bigger questions on that front is that you never have sufficient proof right as what that, Gerard, you were, you were referring to. But in another tradition where the big question is, you know, what is a state and what function does it have historically, then the kind of causal explanation that might require is different. Um, and this is also yet different from, I would say, maybe the kind of work I do. If we consider the question of, say, you know, the meaning of justice after conflict being an important one, generally speaking, like the answers that the kind of research I see myself doing and give will always be situated or, you know, historically, contextually in specific places and theoretically within a specific kind of tradition. Um, And this is, you know, looking at things like, I don't know, the feminist kind of theoretical approaches maybe I, I rely on. So methodologically, for the kind of work I do, this the research being situated in this way is not a problem, like it's not a bug, it's not a limitation of its generalizability, because it's not concerned with that that kind of generalizability, it's a feature of the approach, but it doesn't mean that it cannot speak to different ways in which we can understand the big question of meaning of justice after conflict. So you know, I think that what we maybe need to do more is to spend more time thinking about how we show that this kind of situated or relational approaches in research, this kind of work speaks to big questions anyway, but in a way that is different from the generalizability of the questions that the other type of research asks.
1: Mm. So um, if I could come in briefly, I completely agree that I wouldn't be supportive of a sort of epistomethodological monoculture, where we all have the same notion of what a big question is and how to answer it. But I do kind of think that, you know, at least my ideal would be to have big questions that, you know, are sufficiently broad that people who are epistomethodologically flexible and appreciative of different, you know, different ways of asking and ways of knowing can have you know can use them as focal points to meet and discuss things so i i mean i think about my research when i like uh, for example in my book i i use um a certain epistemological orientation but at the same time like it in formulating the argument you you sometimes look to stuff that's more um you know neo positivist or sometimes you look to stuff that has a more uh historical bent some you know to, to bolster your argument you can there are ways of bringing these things into conversation with each other. Mm. Now, certainly, if you're looking for, you know, the 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 sort of the um, the the bar, if you're setting the bar for causal identification and and rigor at a certain level, those conversations aren't going to be possible because you need a sort of flexible understanding of different types of causes, different types of uh, of of um, explanations, different different. Types of good research without dismissing some as journalistic, descriptive, and others as explanatory. You have to have a sort of flexible notion of what explanation can be. But if you, if people are willing to be sufficiently flexible, the big questions could potentially serve as focal points to have productive conversations across those divides.
2: Uh, maybe I, I, yeah, I don't disagree with that. Maybe it's just that I am a little bit more pessimistic about people's willingness to do that. Well, um, but I mean, yeah, I agree. I think that's a good point.
1: Just to give like a concrete example, if we think of like solving climate change as a big question, or I, I mean, it potentially could be more elegantly framed than that, like there's people with all sorts of different epistemological orientations working on issues related to climate change, whether it's people working on climate justice, histories of ecological destruction or, um, you know, doing formal modeling to figure out how to get uh, agreement, get people to agreement. But but if we phrase or frame the question of climate change, and I'm obviously not putting it as a question now. So I'm not doing it very well. But if we frame it in a sufficiently broad way, couldn't that serve as a focal point to bring people together? um, The kind of heading to to bring, you know, different approaches together. I, I don't know.
0: My, at least my experience in the United States in the American Academy, and there's a, there's a, I think there's a, a um, culture specific aspect to this question. What counts as big questions? will vary from place to place, obviously, but also this possibility of bringing together different perspectives, uh, epistemological, methodological perspectives into dialogue to address big questions. That also, I think, is that possibility varies depending on the context you're operating in. So I think coming back to this issue of fragmentation that you both have talked about, my experience, at least in the American Academy, is that the that these the differences in terms of what gets defined as an appropriate big question and in particular how you are supposed to go about investigating those questions gets imbued with a normative normative political power and i don't that's an inelegant way of putting it but there's there's a there's a kind of a um a a a social dynamic here whereby people who ask Particular kinds of questions in particular kinds of ways are actually doing proper IR, proper scientific IR. That's usually the normative uh, valence that's attached to it. And if you're not asking those kinds of questions in those kinds of ways, then there's no conversation to be had or very little conversation to be had. You're doing critical theory or you're doing normative theory, or you're doing something else. That's not really scientific and not really can't be brought into dialogue with proper. So it does come back to some of these issues about the scientificization of IR and what that means in particular, Tom Nichols, you alluded to a kind of physics envy and Peter rejects that in his duck of Minerva post from yesterday or the day before, whatever that was, but having having a background in physics there's something to this right that that you know we want to be doing proper scientific work and if you're doing other kinds of things that's unacceptable that's journalism that's whatever right and it's normatively and pejoratively classified as something subaltern which means that we it's going to be very difficult to bring these different conceptions of big questions and different conceptions of how to ask big questions or address big questions into dialogue with each other. And so then we end up with this fragmented landscape where we're talking past each other, or we're asking, even if there are big issue areas like climate change that really require multiple perspectives, they end up just getting siloed together and nobody's in dialogue. I don't know if that, yeah. I mean, that then suggests that if we have different conceptions of big questions, You know, the folks who are operating in a particular intellectual space, they think they're asking big questions and people who are operating in a different intellectual space don't see that as the same way. They're asking big questions. And then the question about or the issue then becomes whose conception, whose intellectual space is predominant and that that predominant space is the one that defines big questions and the means by which those questions are addressed.
1: Yeah, and I wonder to what degree realism kind of made its own bed here because you know that for so long they were talking about uh the science of IR modeling parsim- parsimony, trying to whittle down international relations to as few variables as possible. Well, what does that lend itself to, right? Like what when you what sort of analysis does does that lead to? I don't agree with the way that Tom Nichols conflates the the dominance of realism during one era with the rise of quantification in the next but i think they certainly had you know the you know their effects echoed one another but you know i i agree with you that you know part of the problem is just that academia is an incredible the intellectual space that you're talking about is incredibly competitive like there's there's such scarce resources for jobs publications grants all these things that we're looking at so yeah i think you know there is good reason to be pessimistic i think there's the potential for these sorts of uh open ended epistemologically flexible debates but i i think you know when i am more uh you more realistic i think i might agree with your pessimistic <laughs> approach it doesn't mean it's necessary it just means that that's kind of where the incentives are are leading i don't know daniela if you have
2: i mean i don't know i think that for me it's just that we we have to be more. We have to be aware of the power relationships even within um, the operation of like academia and how a certain type of um, doing IR um, is not just dominant by chance. It's because it's historically been linked to power in various forms. Um, and then there is another type of an emerging more. Uh, i guess marginal that has been historically marginalized a way of doing ir that has been more historically marginalized uh, um that tries to recover maybe stories of you know resistance or question that addresses questions of justice, not just as a Value commitment to the study of to re, as the reasons why we study IR, but as actual you know questions that matter for you know the lives of people, and then there are power relationships between these different ways of doing IR, and and so of course the big questions get defined as big questions on the behalf of the powerful. And I think that's what bothers me about having to kind of compromise or trying to find a way always to have a dialogue because if you are put in a position of if there's a hierarchy and you are in the position of subordination you're always having to kind of compromise in order to have this discussion about things that matter uh, and i think that we are still at a point where we are trying to build a space for alternative views and alternative ways of talking about big, big questions and then you know once we are i guess strong enough then to challenge the dominance of other understandings of the questions that have shut people out of the conversation. I don't know if that is too abstract, but but yeah, I'm trying to get that. Yeah.
1: I completely, I think it relates back, I completely agree with what you're saying. And I think it relates back to this question. Before we got on the call, uh, Danielle and I were talking about, you know, when we're formulating projects, we have to think about what audience we're pitching it to and whether it involves compromising some of the you know intellectual ambition behind the the project or kind of your vision for it to speak to a sort of more narrow audience of gatekeepers or whether you know you feel professionally comfortable enough um, to not have to speak to those gatekeepers and to speak to your own intellectual community i think it's a really great point um but yeah i mean i just don't know it's it, it, it is it does end up being a question of like how do you pursue disciplinary change like from within or from uh, outside, uh, from, from like as, as, uh, uh, yeah, as a community of scholars that has a relatively marginalized approach and that wants to see mar- marginalized communities have a larger voice in the discipline, what's the best way for bringing those voices in to framing big questions? I I don't know that I have a great answer.
0: Something you guys have been talking about has gotten me thinking about something, another aspect of big questions. And maybe this is where some of the concern about big questions is coming from. Another way of thinking about big questions is in their disciplinary role as establishing or setting agendas, intellectual agendas. right? And from that standpoint, there is both significant, professional benefit to being the one who's asking big questions in, you know, at least in the American context, you get the citations and citation counts are, uh, and H indexes are absurdly important in tenure and promotion and hiring and all the rest. Um, mostly because I guess we don't have any other metric for evaluating people. You can't just say, oh, that's a good idea. We'll hire them or promote them. We have to have some quantification behind that. So if there's a professional incentive, professional benefit, tremendous professional benefit to being the agenda setter, but we can't all be agenda setters, right? We, most people are going to be lurking on, they might engage with big questions, but they're not going to be asking the big questions. They're going to be working on some smaller piece of it and i think maybe then the concern about big questions comes from a sense that the field is undirected again in specific intellectual spaces because you can't if i'm correct that these intellectual spaces are if not completely incommensurate more or less incommensurate then in then a sense that Either if you're looking at the field as a whole and trying to make them commensurate, it feels like the field isn't going anywhere, isn't engaging anything, doesn't have any direction or purpose. Then the that raises this angst. But you know, do we do we need to have these big questions? So I guess the point questions are who gets to make the big questions? Who gets to ask the big questions? Why aren't, if they are big questions, aren't being asked, why isn't that professional incentive working? And do we need big questions in order to orient the field? Or can we just have people running around asking smaller questions and call it a day?
1: I don't know yet uh, how I would fully substantiate this argument. I'd have to think about it. But I think to a certain degree, this not having a big question allows forces outside the discipline itself to dictate what the big questions are. Um, I mean, we talked about how professional incentives and scarce resources uh, help account for the marginalization of certain approaches and and voices. Uh, um, but you know, there's a there's a whole lot of uh, social, political, and economic forces that bear on the academy. And I think if we aren't purposeful about, I, they don't need to be framed as big questions. I think, you know, it, I, I'm i not, I would never, you know, pitch my own research agenda as, you know, here's the next big question for all to orient the entire discipline. But, you know, big questions could emerge naturally through dialogue. Um, but I think if we're not purposeful about, um, I, I need to think about how to phrase this carefully because I also don't want a sort of top-down, uh, powerful privileged scholars dictating uh the agenda to more marginalized scholars but i do think that across the discipline we should be purposeful about what we study and why and and what what place it has in a larger in a larger sort of academic social and political context
2: i guess i want us to develop big questions differently, maybe, or that is what I would like to see that, you know, you need a big ego to say, I am going to now show you what the next big question in IR is. I don't know if I would ever be able to do that, to say those words and believe them. Um, But I think it's different if we think about our scholarship and our, you know, research and commitments that bring us to do the work that we do as a collective effort and then that big questions are the reflection of you know work that goes on across departments across universities countries and even disciplines and then you know if these emerge organically um from a more fair of engagement of A group of people then it makes more sense to me to see them as big question as opposed to having agenda setters and people who follow
0: Mm -hmm.
1: yeah yeah absolutely and i think you know they can emerge organically with some you know there can be an interplay of organic (laughs) and uh sort of purposeful uh community building exercises Mm -hmm. around um i was thinking a little bit so before we started this uh, podcast, we all had a look at this, this chapter from uh, Robert Cohane on big questions in the study of world politics that's in uh, the Oxford Handbook of Political Science. And one of the things that I found a little bit frustrating about it was he says, he sort of frames big questions as we as IR scholars need to have a bold normative agenda, which is you know making the world a better place but that the study of ir should should uh, marginalize and excise normative questions it should be a uh, as scientific and you know as much of a positive science as possible and i kind of almost think that to a degree like the the normative backdrop can be a sort of fruitful place to have dialogue about big questions like what are the injustices that we see in the world that need to be corrected that's a big question and that's something that People are passionate about, and they're passionate about it in the discipline and outside the discipline. And it can be a productive way to cultivate big questions. And so if we are, if we, you know, bring those normative questions back into the discipline, the normative questions that I assume there's a, a sort of normative backdrop to a lot of scholars' motivation for wanting to be IR scholars. Like, why would you pick this career if you didn't think there was some, some merit in it? Um so if we can have some sort of open dialogue and discussion on that, like, what are your, what, how do you, what, what sorts of things do you want to see in the, in world politics? What what motivates you to study world politics? Um, mm. That could be a, a more honest way of framing big questions, I think.
2: Yeah, I would even go further than that in saying that, I mean, in that chapter, there is th- this dichotomy separating the normative commitment of the, the motivation we have to study world politics from the science or the positive of science of researching it is, is a form of supporting or gatekeeping or supporting the status quo almost, because you are saying that questions of, you know, the question he's framing in that chapter is specifically revolving around obligations among human beings. so that's a question of justice, right? That yeah. is the normative question that you, motivates you to study IR. But then the actual questions that he asks and that our research has to revolve around are about institutional design and about effectiveness and impact. So that is not an operationalization of a question of justice. That is extremely limiting and extremely, um, yeah, as as a way really of, of supporting status quo rather than transformative change in my eyes.
1: That's a great point, yeah.
0: I I do think there's a lot to this normative moral um, backdrop in terms of thinking about big questions. But the more I think about it, I mean, I started this podcast kind of all in on the idea of big questions and that big questions need to be asked. But the more we've talked, the more I've come to the conclusion that I actually think big questions are an incredibly problematic organizing principle for the discipline. Um, In part, I think it's because there's a a desire to have structure and that somebody, as you didn't, as you point out, Danielle, somebody has to, somebody has to be in a position to impose that structure. So there's a sense of hierarchy in the discipline. There are the big thinkers and then there are, they sit at the top, they get the citations, they get the attention. They're the superstars, they're the John Mearsheimers or the Stephen Waltz or whatever. And I don't think it's coincidental that those are the people who are lamenting the loss of big questions. Um, and then the rest of us kind of, there's a, a, a hierarchy going down of people who are addressing bigger or smaller pieces of those big questions or engaging, or who are better or, or less able to engage the debate over these big questions. And if you understand it as a power relationship, again, coming back to this, uh, this concept that you brought up or this issue that you brought up, Daniela, if it's, if big questions are a basis of power hierarchy in the discipline, then number one, we're going to miss a lot of things in the world because there are only a certain number of people who are able to ask these questions and organize the discipline. Uh, and number two it's not really about what's going on in the real world it's about in disciplinary dynamics and this is something you brought up earlier Adam that we really should be engaging with what's going on in the world rather than internal um, you know internal internecine fights about what matters or what doesn't matter uh, and so maybe the field should be a lot of people running around asking questions of, whatever significance or whatever scope they want to ask and then have a kind of much more explicit effort in the discipline to, for people to propose kind of different organizing principles. So more, more, um, uh, you know, sort of brush clearing exercises where people go out and they say, okay, what are we, what is the discipline saying about climate change? There's nobody setting the agenda of climate change or some aspect of climate change, let's go and see what's going on in the discipline and do more brush clearing and more synthesis work. Maybe that's yeah, maybe that's a better way to do it rather than let's have big questions and have a few people stipulate those and everybody else just kind of goes along. And the competition so, is to be able to be the one to one or two or three or four or five or however many people are the ones, you know, launching these big questions into the stratosphere.
1: So I completely agree with uh, the idea that this notion of big questions as currently formulated in IR reinforces some of the discipline's most problematic hierarchies. But I'm also thinking kind of about new ways to, to formulate sort of disciplinary agendas, so to speak. I'm thinking the one thing that uh, I was thinking about is I, I used to work in journalism and I, I'm, I've always really disliked um the sort of uh the insult that a lot of academics um give that oh this is descriptive this is journalistic actually journalists you know are uh, use a lot of relevant methodologies and and there could be a much more fruitful interplay between the academy and journalism if we did if we could stop denigrating them as as uh you know less rigorous but i also think like journalism poses potentially some new sort of feedback mechanisms for generating questions and topic. I'm not saying journalism is a perfect industry, but I was thinking particularly about um, this uh, guy, Jay Rosen, who's at the NYU School of Journalism. And I listened to a podcast with him after Trump's election and sort of the, you know, journalism, a, a lot of journalists and and people, uh, media commentators were writing about the crisis uh, for journalism that that, Trump's election post and the crisis for media and he was talking about all these sort of innovative new media um uh, strategies for cultivating a new focuses for not you know following trump's every tweet but instead having a more citizen-oriented uh journalistic agenda you know potentially like surveying readers what issues do you care about not following you know clickbait and instead uh formulating agendas in new ways. The, the idea of nonprofit journalism formulated around uh, around issue areas like uh, uh, climate activism or criminal justice. There's all these great news outlets that have popped up. And I kind of wonder to what degree we could innovate in in the world of big question development in IR. So like potentially innovate in, in conversation with our students. What are our students looking to learn? Most of my students, um, I mean, this is just... This is not scientific, but uh, but you know, in my conversations with a lot of students, they come into IR thinking they're going to be learning about, you know, a lot of issues that are you know international issues that are central to their lived experience. So migration is a big one. I have a lot of students whose families have migrated from all over the world. They want to learn about migration. It's an intru- issue that seems central to their experience of the international arena, and it's really marginalized in contemporary IR. Um, thinking about justice, thinking about you know economic inequality, um, uh, race these these ideas these these issues that are are central to central motivating factors for students when they go to study IR. Why don't we incorporate that feedback into our disciplinary agenda into our research agendas? I don't necessarily know what the most productive way to do that would be, but I think you know we could think about new feedback mechanisms and new uh, new ways for generating I, I mean they wouldn't be big questions in the traditional sense but big but big the sort of big unifying research themes that uh that I think create community within a discipline
2: yeah I think that's um that's completely right and I've had a similar experience to Adam when interacting with our students um and I think you know that I wouldn't even limit it just to the university environment, but also thinking about where our universities sit and the relationships they build with the communities around them. Um, that should count for how we teach IR and how that then informs our research, not just the, the teaching we do.
0: That seems like a really good place to leave it then. Uh, I don't know that we have any answers to this issue of the big question, whether it they- whether it is being asked, whether they are being asked, whether they should be asked, what the implications are for the answers to either one of those questions, but I, I I found this I think I found this conversation quite helpful. It pushed my evolution on the thinking on this quite dramatically. As I mentioned, I started in one place and now I'm in a completely different place. So if I'm wrong, it's your fault. Uh, <laughs> So thank you very much to both of you for for coming on to the Duck Podcast. I I think this was a really, I I think it was a very fruitful conversation. I hope our listeners get a lot out of it.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thanks, Jared. That was great. Thank you. Thanks, Daniela.
2: Thanks. Thank you both for inviting me.
1: That was Thank you so much, Daniel. That was awesome. I feel like you should have your own podcast. <laughs> the
2: Duck of Minerva.